Many elite athletes dedicate their lives to sport. In a high-impact game like football, the physical toll of this dedication can be devastating. One example of this is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a form of brain damage most commonly linked to boxing. Now a group of pro football players and other athletes are promising to posthumously donate their brains for research on this condition. What can we expect to learn from their inspiring gift? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. Our guest is Dr. Ann McKee, Associate Professor of Neurology and Pathology and Co-Director of the Center for the Study of Traumatic Encephalopathy at Boston University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. McKee. Thank you. Dr. McKee, what is chronic traumatic encephalopathy? It has some similarities to Alzheimer's disease. It's a, a neurofibrillary degeneration of the brain, meaning that the nerve cells accumulate these neurofibrils, which are composed of tau protein, and this, this protein gradually builds up in the brain and actually kills off the nerve cells. And so in this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, there's this buildup, this tremendous buildup, actually, of tau-containing neurofibrillary tangles throughout the brain, and brainstem. And why does this occur from trauma? That's what we don't completely understand, but it appears that repetitive trauma and most commonly repetitive trauma that occurs in the teenage years and early 20s, uh, somehow that, and we think it is multiple sub-lethal events, so a mild trauma, but it has to re- be repeated and it's often a concussion or a concussion-like event, and somehow these repeated traumas set off a a pathologic process that continues to evolve as the person ages. So even though the trauma stops, they stop participating in the sport, they no longer play football, they no longer box, 10, 20 years later they come down with this progressive neurologic deterioration which was a result of the traumatic injuries that they sustained in their youth. Now this uh, isn't three or four incidents. This is multiple, correct? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, we're looking at people with fewer and fewer concussions. We're looking at people younger and younger, and I'm, I'm starting to wonder just how many concussions is necessary. And that's one of the things we definitely need to find out. Well, do you have to have a serious injury like a concussion uh, to add to this, or can it be just minor trauma like getting hit in football or uh, mild boxing mishaps? Well, you know, I think what people call a concussion is often quite mild. And, you know, they think it's just uh, sort of getting their bell rung or maybe they see, see lights or stars or the, something goes black. They feel a little foggy. They don't have to lose consciousness. And all of those events are probably important. Now tell us about this new center that has been established at Boston University. Well, what we're doing, and I, I should say that we set up this center with Chris Nowinski, who really has spearheaded this whole effort. Chris Nowinski is a former Harvard football player who then went into professional wrestling. And when he was a football player, he he sustained a number of concussions. But then actually when he was a professional wrestler, he sustained quite a few more. And he started having difficulties with his memory and also some headaches. And he had a lot of difficulty finding anyone to take him seriously until he met Dr. Robert Cantu. And that's another one of the individuals that's very important in this center. And Dr. Robert Cantu is a neurosurgeon from Emerson Hospital who's a world expert on concussion and its effects. And he really was the first one who diagnosed Chris with a post-concussive 
syndrome and sort of gave him some insight into his condition and actually eventually Chris quit wrestling. So those two are, are key players in this center. And the third person is Dr. Robert Stern, who is a, a neuropsychologist from the Boston University Alzheimer's Center. So the four of us really have started this center. Now, how are you studying this condition? I mean, it it's all done after they die? Well, that's what we're doing now because there are a lot of parallels in this disease to other diseases like Alzheimer's disease. First of all, we need to understand what this disease is. And really, I have searched the literature looking for cases of this. And believe it or not, before we started looking at cases, there were only 46 cases with neuropathology in the literature. So we're really in sort of our infancy in terms of understanding this. We're looking at the brains of individuals who've died because that's one way to define the disease. We're starting to understand where the brain is affected first, what the spectrum of abnormalities is, and in essence, we're just beginning to understand exactly what this is by looking at, unfortunately, people that have died. What our goal is, though, is to evaluate living athletes and get histories, how many concussions, when they had them, how far apart were their concussions, and to follow them with serial uh, neuropsych testing, serial MRIs, and all sorts of other evaluations to try to get a handle on all the questions that you just asked me. How many do you have to have, and what should I worry about? Wouldn't boxing have many more cases than football? Absolutely, absolutely. This is best known in the world of boxing. In fact, if, I think if you look at those 46 cases, something like 42 of them were boxers. So that's the disease it's really associated with. What we're starting to understand now, though, is that other situations that cause head injury can be associated with this, this disease, and that would be, include football and wrestling. It's also been seen in chronic epileptics who have a lot of grand mal seizures. It's been seen in sometimes mentally subnormal people that have head-banging behaviors. So it's, it's a lot of different things that it can be found in. What are the key symptoms? The key symptoms usually are quite subtle to begin with. They're behavioral and personality changes, sometimes just an irritability or some slight confusion, might be memory lapses. But it's often sort of aggressive behaviors and a, and a lower ability to restrict yourself. So sort of heightened aggression and more, more violent outbursts. And when do they show these symptoms? How soon after all these repeated injuries? Well, in a, about a third of them, some of the symptoms are coming out as they retire from the sport. But most people don't really experience these symptoms until they're well out 10, 20 years later. And then they start to come down with these sort of vague symptoms, personality behavioral changes, changes, and then as they age, the disease progresses, but it's, it's fairly slow, slow, the progression. Then they develop much more severe memory changes, dementia, they can get Parkinsonian, they can develop speech abnormalities and gait abnormalities so that they would require probably institutionalization. So it can get quite severe, but the initial stages can be subtle. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Anne McKee, Associate Professor of Neurology and Pathology and Co-Director of the Center for the Study of Traumatic Encephalopathy at Boston University School of Medicine. We're discussing the study of chronic traumatic encephalopathy in elite athletes. Dr. McKee, Muhammad Ali, that great boxer, 
certainly has changed greatly uh, since his heyday. Is his Parkinsonian-type syndrome related to possibly a form of chronic traumatic encephalopathy? Well, I know that Muhammad Ali believes that he has idiopathic Parkinson's disease, but not knowing him, just looking at the symptoms, I, I think it's definitely possible that he has traumatic encephalopathy. For patients who get this, is there any relationship to genetics or anatomical makeup or other factors that contribute to this? Well, we definitely think there are. We don't think it's everybody that gets banged in the head is going to develop this syndrome, but we really don't understand the genetic risk factors at this point. We know that the inheritance of something called the apolipoprotein E4 allele, which is a genetic marker that is actually also associated with a greater risk of Alzheimer's disease. We think that people that have that allele, that inherit that E4 allele, they may be at greater risk for developing this. But that's really so far our only genetic marker, although we think that with greater study, we're going to find what distinguishes a person who's susceptible to this from a person who's not. Can you say that it's different than, let's say, uh, pathophysiology, uh, thinking about someone who deals with a local hypoxic area, trauma with uh, hemorrhage and subsequent fibrosis? Well, what we, we don't see any evidence of old trauma in these, I mean, old hemorrhage in these brains. I think that's one of the key features, these concussions. It's really just microscopic injuries. So you don't see macroscopic changes in their dura. Like they don't have, a, they haven't had a history of a subdural hematoma or an epidural hematoma. They haven't had a brain hemorrhage. They've had fairly subtle changes, and I think that's what we're just starting to understand is that these microscopic changes that we don't see on a routine CT scan are actually something that we really need to pay attention to. And when an individual does get a concussion, they need a lot of rest in order for the nerve cell and its axon to repair itself and to go back into its normal state. And that if you have a second concussion during this at least month-long period of the neuron and the axon recovering, you're much more susceptible to some catastrophic event. So then is this changing uh, when we see youngsters and young adults uh, have injuries and mild concussions that I see very frequently in my office? Should I keep them from doing any significant physical activity for at least a month? You know, yes, I do think you should. And I know that sounds sort of shocking, but I do think that you really need to rest them for a month. In fact, there was a recent article in Archives of Neurology that recommended a month of rest after a concussion. And we're just seeing so many changes that persist for at least a month on a very uh, microscopic level, metabolic level, that I think you really, that would really be my recommendation. And the other thing is, the, I think part of the problem with this is that we're dealing with something inside the head that has some symptoms like headache, dizziness, maybe, maybe some memory lapses, but you can't really see it. It's sort of an invisible injury. It's not like your knee or your leg that isn't, isn't working very well. And so we tend to sort of poo-poo it, but we actually should be paying more attention to it because that's obviously a part of the body that we really need to protect. Now, many players that uh, you've studied are pro football players, but the National Football League, the NFL, on on some level has deflected discussion here, yes? That's true. That's true. Why do you Um, think that is? I think there are a lot of parallels to this story between, say, what happened with cigarettes and and some of the major tobacco manufacturers. I mean, this is not going to be news that is necessarily welcome. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, With all the concerns with added protection, uh, better neck protection, better head protection, better helmets, better 
face guards, things like that. Has that helped at all, or, or is that really uh, just not a factor? You know, I can't say for sure if that's helped or, or not. The, the truth of the matter is there's so many variables changing at the same time. All of those things that you said are true, but players are also bigger, they're faster, the hits are harder. I mean, you know, so those things are changing in the opposite direction at the same time. Now, if you look at this from a common horse sense perspective, and, and you watch a pro football game, certainly when I see some of these guys getting hit, I'm amazed that they get up, meaning that they're not killed. But are we talking about only that type of trauma, or are we talking about the trauma that our youngsters do in high school and in uh, perhaps college in not necessarily organized sports? Well, you know, I think we're doing it at all these levels, and I think it actually may be more important the the lesser injuries occurring in our teenagers and kids in their 20s those actually may be more important than the injuries that are occurring in the older professional players. There's something about the young brain that hasn't quite finished maturing, and maturation of the brain takes a long time. probably doesn't finish until, like, the early 20s. You read about it all the time, kids with a concussion, and then they have a second concussion shortly afterwards. They sometimes die. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Anne McKee. We've been discussing new research on chronic traumatic encephalopathy in elite athletes. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening.